Over the last four episodes, we've been heading deep into the British countryside to meet winemakers who, despite the climate, or, or this year perhaps because of it, are cultivating and processing their own grapes for the wine they produce. But for this final episode of the series, we're going somewhere quite different to explore an entirely different model altogether. Unlike the other winemakers we've met so far, the guys at London Crew don't actually have a vineyard, but instead they cherry-pick the best of the year's harvest from growers around London. And this not only ensures the highest quality final product, but gives them more flexibility to try new styles of wines. This model also allows Alex and Aaron, who we'll be meeting shortly, to really focus on the important stuff, which for them is getting to taste and share wine directly with their consumers. Today, we'll be delving deep into the process of tasting wine, something this lot have gotten quite good at so far. And we'll not only be learning how to appreciate the alchemy that is winemaking, but we'll be reflecting on the tasting notes of our own lives, taking the time to savour the nuances of our own experiences and learning how to reflect on our achievements. But before all that, we need to find the winery, which is tucked away down an alley in southwest London on the site of an old gin distillery. Right, and I promised you a treat today. Here we are, one of my favourite wineries. Can't see any vineyards, I can see a parking lot, I can see block of flats, uh, I can see a soft storage building, I can see an alleyway. And I think that's where our winery is because we're going to London Crew. And London Crew is an urban winery and its whole purpose is no vineyards here. Well, where would you put a vineyard? We're in West Brompton. Whoops, Alex, hello. Welcome to London Crew. <laughs> I can hear the tube. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I actually come to work on the tube. <laughs> How exciting. Well, let's, come on, let's come go on, on in. Come inside. Let me show you around. And then you can dial it back. Summoning everyone. Welcome to London Crew. Um, so just a little bit about our facility. We were the first uh, urban winery in the UK. Uh, an urban winery is not an unusual concept. They've been around for thousands of years. Traditionally, in parts of the world like Bordeaux and across Europe, growers would have grown their fruits and they wouldn't have had the facilities to press and, and, and bottle, so they would have brought it into an urban area, which could have been Bone, could have been Bordeaux, <laughs> and they would have then uh, pressed the fruit and processed it. So it's, it's an old concept, but our philosophy is to try really and capture the Garden of England, which is very close. We can drive down to Kent and West Sussex where most of our fruit comes from. We'll literally be involved in every step of the process. So why it might seem abstract that you're in, you know, West Brompton and Earls Court in central London with lots of roads and this very urban area, but in truth, uh, we're very close. It's very easy for us to get our fruit. But what we'll do is we'll supervise the picking we develop very strong relationships with vineyards. We bring a ton of fruit in, we'll process it, we'll weigh it up next door, we'll do all of the elevage, all of the processing here, put it in tank. I'll let Alex deep dive and get nerdy on that, that's his area of expertise. But without further ado, uh, we have a gold medal winning wine, thanks to Oz over there, uh, which is our Blanc de Noir, which we were shortlisted in a very competitive category. It's a 2019 
Pino Menier from Canterbury, microclimate in Canterbury, and I'll let Alex talk a bit more about the juice. So the first wine we're trying today, uh, you've all had a brief introduction, but I'll go through it in a little bit more detail. In the glass, you have Pinot Meunier. I really like Meunier for the fruity quality it has. So very nice red berry fruit quality. So the way this is made, it's as Aaron said, we press it quite carefully, quite softly with sparkling wines. It was fermented in stainless steel tank, so first pressed very softly. Once it's finished fermentation in tank, we then actually bottle it. We put it in the bottle with sugar, yeast, and a bit of nutrients. The yeast likes some food, so we give them some amino acids and vitamins. It might sound strange, but it's important. And then they ferment in the bottle. The bubbles in your glass are actually from the yeast. They're natural. We don't add them. The yeast make them. So your wine that you're trying now live for two years with this yeast in the bottle. So when you smell the glass, you can smell a yeasty note. So that isn't by mistake. This is the classic aroma for this method. If, if any of you who've done baking at home, exactly. you know how that strange creaminess when, you're making, when you've added the yeast to the flour and, you're, mm. and, the, and the, the bread is beginning to prove, it's a, a slightly sweet sour, but it is creamy. That's and that's the absolute heart of good bread. Mm. And it's that sort of bread, bread yeast, bread dough creaminess, which I love. Do people like it? That's an important question. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Really? Yeah. Do. It's kind of biscuity. I always think yeah. a really nice champagne or method is a bit like a biscuit. Something exactly. Music to his ears, yeah. That, that's great tasting, Louise, because biscuitiness yeah. is I'm one of the honest. ways you describe <laughs> the yeastiness. Yes. It's a classic tasting description for yeast. As, as a tasting group here, was it acidity or creamy biscuitiness that, that was more obvious on your palates? Acidity for me, I felt a crispiness, apples. And, and Anthony, were you more on the biscuity, creamy side or more on the acidity? It's, it's, it leaves a nice tartness in the mouth. So that's the, the crisp apple that we were talking about. Yeah. That very English, that lovely Cox's crisp that, apples that's, that's kind, kind of approach. Leave, leave so you're, you're more on the acid style, Elaine. I am, did you? yes. I think more the biscuity, sort of smooth. I felt it was very smooth and light, um, but nice, tingly, the, the, the bubble, so yes. That sounds to me as though the balance is really nice, because around the table, we're about half and half. Um, the smoothness and the biscuitiness is fundamental to good quality sparkling wine, but the acidity, without the acidity, it wouldn't be refreshing just like an overripe apple or an overripe plum isn't refreshing. So Alex, are you saying that sugar and acid balance each other out? In that if you have a higher acid, you can sort of neutralize that Correct. with a higher amount of sugar, so you don't actually taste either of them so much. That balancing of acidity and sugar, not just sparkling, in every wine we make, for me is absolutely core to a good wine. It can go both ways. Too much acidity means it's too aggressive to your palate. You can't enjoy it. Red wines are, in England are a classic uh, situation where that happens sometimes, where they're dry, no sugar, but very high acid for Pinot Noir from the wrong vintage. Or the other extreme in Australia, you get very ripe fruit. And as they get very ripe, the sugar uh, is very high, but the acidity is very low. And you get, you might, jammy reds and they're, and they're flabby and they're not well balanced and you take a sip of that and you won't want to take a second sip because it isn't moorish for your palate it isn't mm. like uh, isn't pleasurable 
So it is about that balance, as, as um, Oz mentioned. Is very, it's like, it's like us, because, I mean, we want, we want harmony and equilibrium in ourselves. Yes. Um, and none of us have got the perfect balance. But all of us, as we, as we age and as we experience life, work out in ourselves in a way as though we have to taste our own personalities and think, okay, I'm a bit of an acidic or a slightly sour sort of person, but I could balance that by being better humoured or by being more generous, I'd be being more friendly. So in a way we can wine taste our own lives um, by looking honestly at ourselves and saying, what are my good points? What are my bad points? I can balance those out if I want to. Because there's no, you can't taste wine if you're negative. And you notice wine geeks sometimes, that they never smile, they're always marking wines out of 100. And you just, it, it's, you're wasting our time. Yeah. You know, you shouldn't be a wine geek. You shouldn't be a wine person. Well, you don't understand wine. wine. Wine is about people and about experiences and, and, and share and yeah. love and all these things. And, and for that matter, music and the sunshine in yeah. the sky and the wind blowing in the, down the street. It's all these things. And alcohol. If it didn't and have alcohol. alcohol in it, would we actually be... <laughs> if this was just but grape juice? Yeah. <laughs> and, and alcohol, Aaron, you're absolutely right. It's the, it's the, up, the uplifting quality that, that alcohol also brings to it. Shall we shift gear into red? Will we, will, will we try the precoce? Yeah? Straight away, we've got a very interesting nose. Sorry, that's a, that's a wine-tasting term. <laughs> it has a very interesting smell, is what I meant. It's something which is slightly vegetal, but it's, mm. it's a fruit as well, and it, it's taking me back to the plums that my mother used to uh, stew when, when we were kids. And she wouldn't stew the Victoria plums because they were too precious. And they, it was another black-skinned sort of plum. That she, the cooking plums. They weren't quite damsons, but they might have been. And it was in that spectrum. The spectrum to me is... <laughs> The spectrum to me is my mum's kitchen when in, in the end of the, of the summer when I was a kid. That's, that's almost my taste spectrum. Now we can say, oh, it's plums or it's damsons or whatever. But I'm back in my mum's kitchen with that great big pan of boiling fruit and the steam coming off it. I've got a more Irish uh, 1980s version of that where I've got a packet of jelly uh, where I've just boiled the kettle and you pour the jelly and I've just made a mould. I had a fish mould as a kid. It was a red plastic fish. And you put my, caught my jelly and I'd eat one, of course, and chew it. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of resistance against the jaw. And then I put boiling water in and this is the smell I get. It's a slightly kind of jelly mould kind of, it's a dark fruit, but it's also got kind of bright raspberry fruit in there as well. But um, almost kind of candied and sweet. Elaine, are there any particular smells or flavours that bring back something in your life? Yeah, I think with my father, uh, he was trying to bring a bit of Jamaican flavours into our homes and a bit of Jamaica, so it was like he teased um, his two daughters with hot pepper sauce, just a teaspoon, just to see our reaction. Yeah, just, well, just a tip of the teaspoon, you know, just to see our reactions and the colour and the taste of it and the shock of, you know, just having this hot spice. And then he brought in the Jamaican patties, which are lovely colour and the flavour and the aromas. So he was bringing his side of Jamaica into his home, into our home in sort of like UK. 
<laughs> in Stratford. <laughs> and, and when you have the, the, that flavour and smell now, does it take you straight back to childhood? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it really does. Uh, and it takes me back, it connects me to my father as well. So it's like always that connection and that memory. Malika brought in this wonderful banana cake. Yeah. Mm. I'm, I'm a descendant of the Windrush and my aunt came here as a child from the Caribbean. And um, she was taught by my grandmother, her mother, to, to bake this banana cake, which now she bakes in lots of different Caribbean takeaways. And um, I don't think there was anyone in here that didn't like it, I don't oh, think. Loved it. Best, <laughs> best banana cake I've ever had. And she, and, and she hasn't got a modern cooker that she bakes it in. She hasn't got a big machine. My son does the mixing with a, a broken, worn-down wooden spoon <laughs> that's just like the tip to the, the handle bit. You pull she, out the cooker and it falls off the door. She doesn't <laughs> sift the flour. She doesn't, doesn't sift the flour. <laughs> it is 40 years, though. And, and like yeah. we said before, it's the person's love and yeah. energy that goes into it, too, you know? Yeah. Anthony, what about you? I used to, I used to smoke a pipe. And um, I used to buy a peculiar old-fashioned tobacco from a tobacconist in Manchester. And the reactions, and it comes back down to this individual, how people deal with smells and tastes on an individual basis, was that some people said, oh, my God, this is lovely. It reminds me of Christmas. It reminds me of my dad. Other people would be looking for a fire extinguisher. <laughs> so I would leave my contribution by, by, by saying that what is the most definitive smell of changing of the seasons than autumn leaves on a bonfire? Follow that, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, Alex's new challenge. <laughs> Make a wine which reminds Anthony of <laughs> autumn leaves. <laughs> um, mine's, I'll, I'll try and do a non-wine focus one for a second, but I'll bring it back to wine, obviously. <laughs> uh, so whenever I travel back to Australia, um, I. We, we obviously travel 30 hours or something stupid and we get off, we land. And the first smell as you step off the plane smells like Australia. And it's strange. It's like eucalyptus smell. It's a completely different, uh, it sounds strange maybe, but we, we have this, uh, just every tree in the area is eucalyptus, so you get it, the background smell, a small amount of eucalyptus smell always. You don't notice it when you're there and you don't notice it when you're here. But when you go back into it, you notice it. So it is very familiar and it's, yeah, it's nice. Um, and where I'll tie that back into wine is that I actually find Australian wines have that slight eucalyptus note. So whether it's a leaf every now and then falls into a Syrah bin or, I don't know, the, the, the bunches were growing next to eucalyptus so somehow the eucalyptus smells got into the berry. I don't know the, the science behind this, but you can drink a Syrah quite often you'll have a eucalyptus note and that makes me think of home. So it is the wine synergy of sort of that memory sort of ticks off and I think of where I grew up and all that fun stuff. Louise, how about you? Um, so someone's talking about uh, taking your baby swimming and there's a really particular smell of a swimming bath. So recently I've been going to um, a different gym and I go there on a Friday and I walk past the swimming pool and the smell of the swimming pool has not changed since the 1970s. I don't know how they've managed to get the exact same blend of chlorine. 
but they have and it's just an instant going back to kind of being 10 11 and being in a swimming club i find wines take me by surprise uh and i find one of the joys of wine is um the unpredictability uh, of flavours rather than the predictability of flavours. Uh, I want to be surprised, I want to be elated. I never open a bottle of wine hoping I know exactly what it's going to be like. I like to be surprised, I like to be, have something else I hadn't expected. But there's one wine which always takes me straight back home when I was a kid, and that's old classic red wine from Bordeaux. And it, Bordeaux, great red Bordeaux, has a very simple flavour. It's a blackcurrant flavour and a cigar box flavour. It's not complicated. It's like, how can you improve upon bacon and eggs? Don't add extra stuff, it won't help. How can you improve on fish and chips? Don't add extra stuff, it won't help. Great Bordeaux has just got this flavour of blackcurrants and cigar box. And to me, it's my mother making her blackcurrant jam and the first jar she brings out and she puts it on a plike of, of, of white bread with a great chunk of country <laughs> butter and slabs on the first blackcurrant jam of the year. That's the blackcurrant. Not any old blackcurrant, that blackcurrant. And the cigar box is, the cigar box, the old Romeo and Juliet Havana cigar box, my dad, used to keep on his desk to keep his paper clips and his drawing pins and his pencil stubs in as a kid. And I've still got that old Romeo and Juliet cigar box on my desk. That's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I must say, I'm thinking about our, our tasting today. Um, I noted down that we, we taste wine and we're looking for, for acid and for colour and for structure and for fruit, uh, all these kind of things, which may not work by themselves, but as a whole, they do actually come into balance. And Alex's challenge is to bring these curiously disparate ideas and to pull them together. And when we actually finally taste them, we are tasting with pleasure in mind. We look at this wine wanting to enjoy it. And I thought maybe we should look at our lives in the same kind of way, that the components may not work by themselves, but together they make us, us. And just as with wine, if we actually looked at our own lives, our own experiences, our own achievements, our own pluses and minuses, if we looked at them with a sense of pleasure rather than a sense of excessive self-criticism, I think we could learn a lot about making ourselves feel better about us being ourselves. Cheers to that. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Thank you to all the winemakers who've shown us nothing but warmth and hospitality over the course of this series. It is such a joy to see the UK scene flourishing so vividly and there's no doubt that is all down to the passion of these producers. 
Thank you also to my team of tasters. It has been an utter joy to share this experience with you. And thank you for being so honest and open. And I hope this is just the start of your journey into the world of wine. Thank you to the Audio Content Fund and the production team at Sonda Radio for making this all possible. And if you like the sound of what you've heard, please support British wine where you can. Buy British where you can. And come and visit these gorgeous wineries and vineyards, which it's often difficult to believe are in the UK. Our UK. You can listen back to the other episodes from this series online. Just search Like a Fine Wine with Oz Clark. And please, drink responsibly. <laughs>